0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by One House. Learn more about our comprehensive hospitality solutions at one-haus.com.
0: I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, September 21st, 2016. This is the 117th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a top hospitality consultant. I will introduce her in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, And then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer public relations, I'm going to tip off the show with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to take criticism as constructive. Good critique can be an influencer for improvement. If you're open-minded. Sure. Not all comments may be useful or even accurate to your mission. But perhaps some are, and you can use them to get better at what you do. As Thomas Keller remarked on Pete Wells' critical New York Times review of his restaurant, per se, demoting it from four to two stars, sometimes a good kick in the teeth can make you better. So take the high road, as Keller did, and use criticism as a means of motivation and improvement. That's my tip today. Now, I'm very happy to have my guest here in the studio. It is Kate Edwards a 30-year veteran of the hospitality business. Kate founded Kate Edwards Consulting in 2007 and since has worked with some of the biggest names in the hospitality industry. Her client list includes New York City favorites, Il Buco, Brooklyn Fair, Le Cirque and the Rainbow Room, and timeless hotels including the Essex House and the Plaza Hotel. Since 2008, Kate has been an instructor at the Institute of Culinary education. She is now also an educator at Journey. She is a contributing writer, frequent speaker, and author of her first book, Hello, and Every Little Thing That Matters, the customer service book that will transform your business. So welcome, Kate. Hi there. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming out. My pleasure. Nice to have you here. Thank Talk you. some some hospitality consulting with you. Let's do it. <laughs> so I like to start out with how people got into the industry. What attracted you to restaurants hospitality?
3: Well, it's a good question. I mean, when I was a kid, we didn't really go out to restaurants a whole lot, except when we were visiting my grandmother. And that was like the most thing, fun thing to do. And when I went to college, I sort of just needed a job. So I applied for a job as a um, short order cook, actually, one summer and ended up being the short order cook for which I have no aptitude, and so I realized I didn't want to be in the kitchen. I wanted to be where the action was, which was the front of the house. So that switched up my intentions for being in the front of the house, and after that I started working um, as a bus girl for a long time, and then I moved to the city and wrangled a job as a server, then a hostess, and then I just kept moving up the ranks and found out that I knew a whole lot and really liked it.
2: Wow, that's cool. So, where did you grow up and and go to school?
3: Uh, I grew up in Western New York State between Rochester and Buffalo, and then I went to school in Massachusetts at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Okay. And um, there was some there was there's a small restaurant scene there, mm-hmm. but it was it was definitely a formula you know formulaic time for me of like oh cool restaurants are something cool yeah. to enjoy yeah.
2: I had a lot of jobs in restaurants in my teens and through college, but I was never a short order cook.
3: Yeah. I did it <laughs> once and I still can't cook a burger burger to temperature, so <laughs> Well that's
2: a hard job. I it mean is. it's demanding. It I give is. a lot of respect.
3: <laughs> yeah. It was hard and I was like, other people need to be doing this.
2: Yeah, so so how did so before you launched on your own in two thousand seven, so how did you gain more experience with, with restaurants? What were you doing after college? Tell well,
3: um, when I first moved to the city, I somehow, I say, I wrangled a job at the Odeon. And I had had enough experience, and I guess I presented well enough that they hired me as a server, and I was completely overqualified. And they kept me on for a couple months, and then they very kindly said, We've over we've overhired, and you know we, we can't keep you on, which I, I understood perfectly because I was floundering. But I took that to heart, and I was like, I need to get a job that's more commensurate with my experience, and I ended up getting a job as a hostess um, at a restaurant at the time, which was the the hottest thing in town. It was 44 at the Royalton. Jeffrey Zakarian oh, right. was the chef. It was Brian McNally, one of his ventures, and I just learned a ton there. And I got bumped up to Maitre D, and I started to get my first feet wet in terms of managing and, and running a restaurant from the front door and realized that I I was really sorely uh, not quite ready for that job. Um, And so after that, I realized I needed to get more experience because I had never been really a waiter at that level. I had never been a bartender. And so after that, I started taking jobs to really get my experience up because I found managing without having the experience was incredibly hard to do. So that just led me from job to job, and I I waited, I bartended, I co-checked, and I I did a little bit of everything at all sorts of different restaurants, and then landed in 1997 two weeks after it opened at Balthazar and spent seven years there moving up again from waiter to maitre d'. Um, And I left there to open per se, which was another fantastic place to learn and grow and
2: Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, you, you, did
3: you know Anthony Rudolph from Journey from per se? I didn't actually. He okay. um, he replaced me, but after I left, and then we met there because um, I went back in to visit, and I met him. And everyone was like, "This is Anthony," and I'd heard so much about him, and we clicked then. But it wasn't until he left there that we actually struck up a friendship. And you know, we sort of realized that we're, you know, siblings from different parents, kind of thing. Like he's my brother from another mother, in a way, and we, we have a fond friendship now. That's, that's amazing. I'm also thinking
2: I didn't realize that. And that makes my tip even more appropriate. <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, your, your tip is right, because criticism sounds so cruel, sometimes sounds so harsh. But, you know, if you can really listen to it and take something mm-hmm. from it and grow a little taller, grow a little stronger, grow a little um, more humble, um, it can actually really help your business. So Yes, and I just have so much respect for Thomas Keller.
2: I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. So he does always take the high road. He's so classy. Absolutely. And, um, yeah. Yeah. oh, wow, that's great. And so you work with Keith McNally for a long time. Yes, yes. Um, what was that experience like? I mean, he's, he's been such a successful restaurateur. Um, I'm a fan of all of his places. Oh, yeah. Never worked for him. But...
3: Um, yeah, I mean, he, he has such an incredible vision, and he's so um, clear on what that vision and what that guest experience should be. For instance, when I was a waiter there, he was so insistent that we always bring the cheese plate to every table. And for the waiters, we always groaned and moaned because it was a marble cheese plate that weighed half a ton, and half the American guests didn't want the cheese anyway. But what he was absolutely correct about is that that's part of the experience of dining in a French restaurant, is having having this cheese plate. And, you know, even just seeing it go through the dining room sends a message of authenticity and, um, you know, just reality and I think that that's what so many guests when I when I worked there both as a waitress and as a maitre d' were on is they felt transported when they walked in the door and I think that's something that he does so well is creating an environment and an experience that is transporting
2: yeah no that's true and then you see the cheese and I don't know, you eat with your
3: eyes. And yeah, so. yeah. And whether it's going yeah. to your table or somebody else, there's something happening, right? There's some experience that's happening. And the same with the towers of seafood. You see that go by, and even if that's not your thing, you're like, wow, what is that? Right. You know, the visualization, um, the eating with your eyes, the, you know, having that experience visually and experientially is, is very, very powerful. I mean, we used to have a, you know, a roast whole chicken for two, and... That was one of those dishes that you sell one. The first one that sells in a night sells all the rest because mm-hmm. we would take a stroll through the restaurant with that whole chicken and its presentation in the copper pot with the herbs and, and everything and just the smell of it mm-hmm. and then the experience of it and the, ooh, what's that? I mean, people were beguiled by that. And I mean, like, you know, places like the Nomad have taken the whole roast chicken to the next level. You know, that's that's what they're known for. Right. No, very true. Yeah. So then you decided to
2: leave working in restaurants and help restaurants as a consultant. Um, Why? I mean, when did you, I mean, you made that leap and how did you get your first client? Or was that like, did you
3: have them already? They were like talking with them before you made the leap to go on your own or? I did not. I decided to go on my own and I like the way you phrased it because I wanted to help people. And I felt like I had learned so much from the high volume environment of Balthazar and the high quality environment that I was in to the very fine-tuned environment of per se. I felt like I had a very unique point of view on service. Plus, what I've always said about my experience is I have not only worked in good places, I've worked in some train wrecks back in the day. So I've seen what doesn't work as mm-hmm. much as what does work, and I felt like I had something to share. And so I spent a couple of months developing my my concept for my business, and then I just was like, I'm just gonna talk to everybody I know, and so I did. And one of the people I reached out to was um, a friend of mine. Jason Lappin, and he had, in my knowledge, he had started his own consulting business. And at that point, he had, but he had actually moved on, and he started working for a company called Elizabeth Blau. And if Um, you know her, yeah. Yeah, from Las Vegas. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So based in Las Vegas, they had a client in New York City. Um, They were going to oversee it, but they wanted somebody to be the man on the ground with that. And Jason was like, well, what do you, you know, I said, I'm just launching this business. What, you know, can you offer any advice? And he was like, yeah, I'll give you advice, but what are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm looking for clients. He's like, I've got a client for you. So he was like, can you help us out with Le Cirque, which was their, their client. Mm. And so that was a gift from God. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'd say that's, that's a good first yeah, client. <laughs> yeah. Amazing first client. But of course, you know, incredibly, um, you know, for me, you know, wow, now I've got to prove my stuff. I'm saying I'm a consultant. I better, I better bring the goods. So it ended up being a really great first client. I mean, not only, you know, because of their level of quality and and, um, just what they do. They're legendary. I learned so much from being there. But I also was able to test what I knew and, you know, test, you know, how I'm able to do things and get results and and really show up for them because they were my first client. So I took that to heart. It was a great opportunity.
2: Yeah. So so how, I mean, how do you work? And when you had this as a new, first new client, Do you go in, observe,
3: um, implement changes? Like, how does it work? In that case, and this is the way that I used to work. So in that case, they had just lost a GM. And in that case, they they needed somebody, right? So I came in. I acted as the general manager while I was trying to figure out what was happening there, because they were having some um, service challenges. But service problems can happen from for so many different reasons. And basically what had happened is, you know, they lost a number of their formerly union employees when they moved from a union operation to a freestanding restaurant. And so, you know, they had a whole bunch of new people who they'd never really had to train in that way before. It always was, you know, you hire a new person when somebody comes on, they get the training. But it was one person at a time as opposed to an entire restaurant full of, of people. So basically in upholding the role of GM, I was able to get to know the staff and find out, you know, what it is that they they did and what was the right way. Because I would ask five people, how do you do X, Y, Z? And they would all have a different you know, opinion on that. And I, so what I did was I identified what the service was and then I created manuals and documents to display that. And then I trained them again on this is the way we're going to do it, got them on board. And then we hired a new GM. I trained her and then, you know, really just continued with um, making change and, uh, you know, structuring, structuring the, the service systems that they had already in place. Right. So it's,
2: it's consulting for the front of the house, not yes. anything tied into the back of the house? I mean, it's yes. all tied together. But.
3: Well, I work, I've actually worked with a number of chefs, and I get brought on by chefs with some regularity now. Um, I tend to work with people because I do a lot of menu training. And um, to me, knowledge is power. And the most confident waiters are the ones that have the clients that trust them, and they, they sell the most. And, you know, you want to be confident in the role that you have. So I do a lot of training on service, but I also do a lot of food and beverage training. Um, But the menu training is key. So I will create, uh, you know, training documents around that from menu descriptions to how to talk about the food to a food glossary so that any terms or ingredients they're not familiar with, they can learn about. Um, And that's why, you know, I think I've I've worked with so many chefs now because they, they know that I value that just as much as, you know, the steps of service. Yeah,
2: just listening to you, I'm thinking, I want a restaurant just to hire you. Awesome. <laughs> a, that's where I'm at. No, no, it sounds great. And I feel, feel everyone, because I, with doing PR for restaurants, I feel everyone could, could you know, need that help and guidance for someone who's experienced
3: and, and sees it from the outside looking right. in. And that's know? the thing, because I will get, you know, like a Le Cirque, they, I mean, they wrote the book. I was very humbled when they, they said they needed help. Um, they really did write the book on fine dining. So you know, when you're called in to help a brand that's already been established and help them do better, I mean, really, what my process is is to go in and ask questions, find out what's going on, who's you know who's doing what, and and is that important? Do we need that? Is that happening at the right time? So I do a lot of interviewing, and I do a lot of time um, talking to even you know the, everybody in service, right, to find out how is it operating and, and what's happened and what's changed. Try to get a finger. On the pulse and then try to save the the bits that are there and that they're known for because that's that's essential um and then try to just you know rejigger or re re-address the things that are are becoming a little frayed
2: yeah makes sense okay we're gonna take a little break come back talk some more with kate edwards so stay with us this is all in the industry on heritage radio network mm-hmm.
0: For this commercial break is brought to you by Taxstar, and this one's called Third Degree Rug Burns.
1: This episode is brought to you by One House. At One House, we noticed that most serious chefs and managers don't hang out in brightly lit offices. So we go out in the fields to gather the best talent wherever they may be. We meet and talk to them, like humans used to do back in the day. We are the people people. Our talent sourcing covers salaried dining room, kitchen, and corporate professionals. We thrive in Michelin-starred, James Beard, and mom and pop environments alike, from coast to coast. Drop us a line at one-haus.com or at info-haus.com. At for our confidential, up-to-date, and relevant career options, or if you're an operator seeking a culinary or management-level pro.
2: Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Kate Edwards of Kate Edwards Consulting, a top hospitality consulting agency in New York City. And uh, I want to get a little more into the nuts and bolts of what you do. So you work with clients I see in your website services. You build, revitalize, and empower. And then you also have these core values, the seven E's. So let's talk about those. And how did you how did you come up with this just based on Based on your experience, and you, you like the letter E.
3: I like the letter E. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting. So, like, you know, there's some phrase about the cobbler's kids have no shoes, right? Um, I One of the hallmarks of what I do is creating mission and core values for my clients, especially for new companies, because I believe in it. And then I was like, I don't have that. And I was hiring a, an intern, and I was like, I need to have this. So I started, and it was actually kind of cool in a way to do it already being in business, and then, you know, as opposed to saying, this is what I hope to do, this is what, okay, this is what I do, or this is what I'm known for, this is what I I hope to uphold. And I did it sort of from the educational point of view, like, if somebody's going to join my team, if I have an intern... Um, this is what they need to know about how I think about my clients and how I treat them. And I think one of the first ones I came up with was empathy. You know, empathy is, is something that I do feel for my clients. And I feel, I feel for them, especially if they're coming to me because they're in a time of need or they need some assistance. So empathy was really the first one. And, um, energy was another one too, where it was like, you know, I'm going to bring energy to this. I want to put my best energy into this. And so really when I, when I put it together, I put down as I do for my clients, I put down all the words that make sense to me. And I realized there were a few that stood out and they had something in common, which happened to be, they started with E. And then I realized I could actually make, make a whole list of E's Mm -hmm. that sort of, you know, explained and expressed what, what, what I, or we do as a company for our clients and, and why that's important.
2: Yeah, no, I lo- I love that. Um, that makes sense, I and mean, starting with empathy is, I think, a good place to start. Yeah. So I think it's hard for people, just people in general, to to get help or or to get guidance from someone on something. Right. Right. Um, so rebuild or building, revitalizing, empowering—that's that's the way you the approach. Yes. Um, and is it the same for every client, or you kind of look in and figure out what what needs needs work
3: well generally clients fall into one of the three categories so build would be if you have a new concept that you want to to build right so it would be starting from scratch and one of the um, aspects of my work is doing concept development so be really getting in with the client and finding out what it is they want to do how are we going to express that how are we going to enunciate that to their guests and to their potential guests decide who their guests are and then figure out what location would be best in order to serve those people. Um, so really building the, the uh, concept from the ground up. Revitalize could be a number of things, but revitalize generally means, you know, like some of these other clients where they have an existing place, they're feeling like it's not going as it should. And so I'm going to go in there and help them revitalize and, um, you know, hopefully uh, bring it back to where it was or where they'd like it to be. So revitalize means sort of you know a revitalization project in general, and then empower is really about you as an entrepreneur, you as a as a leader, trying to help you empower yourself and empower your team with knowledge and skills, and that comes vis a vis my expertise in uh, executive coaching. And I found out that when you say executive coaching to a bunch of restaurant people, half of them will say, oh. Right, and half yeah. of the other people will be like, "What's that?" Right. So we don't deal with executive coaching, and nobody in the restaurant world considers them an executive. I mean, maybe some people do. But the people that I deal with, mom and pops and entrepreneurs, they don't. Um, so I realized that what I did was really entrepreneurial coaching. And so I work with entrepreneurs on their leadership skills and building building them up to be the most powerful and confident leader they can be. And then I also work with their teams. And primarily that's managers, but also a lot of chefs. I do a lot of coaching with chefs because a lot of times chefs get sort of shuttled down um, sort of an old-fashioned uh, training route, which is, you know, do as I say, I'm not as I do, um, the yes, chef mentality. And then even sometimes sort of, uh, you know, this militaristic or almost ag- aggressive uh, way of managing where you're managing by strength, not by, um, you know, inspiration. So it's trying to help them learn new new techniques for being effective in their role. And I find that incredibly rewarding. And, um, you know, I've had some people um, really make some significant change that really makes them feel good about what they're doing.
2: Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest challenge of
3: of going into restaurants and helping them out? Um, Well, the first thing with anybody or any business that wants to change, they have to want to change. Um, Because if they don't really want to change, then there's really no sense in me trying to help them change Mm -hmm. because it's not going to be the right timing. Generally, people who bring me on are at that point. So it's, you know, lucky for me that they, they really are ready Um, I I don't feel like there's too much where people are put off by, uh, you know, hearing, hearing the criticism per se, or um, working with somebody. Um, uh, What I find, though, is it's um, hard for them to sometimes own it. Um, So I'll come in and and I'll say, you know, here's, here's a way to do it. And they'll say, oh, can you do it? I'll be like, well, I can do it. But you know, we got to train your team on how to do it so that you can you can do this. Use this new technique or use this tool, and I'm big on it. You know, if I can do it, if I can use it, that doesn't matter. It matters if you can use it and you can. You you want it? You want to take it to the next level? So, for instance, I do a lot of documents and um, manuals and training guides for people. But if you're not going to use it, let's not do it. right? Right. Let's find another method that's going to work for you. Maybe it's, um, you know, uh, figuring out a, a, you know, a punch list or something like that, or bullet points as opposed to a book. Because some people want the book and some people like, we're not going to look at your book. So it's, it's really important for me that whatever I I present them has to be something they can use and keep, keep, uh, keep rolling with long after I'm gone.
2: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Who
3: are some of your current clients?
2: If you can Uh, say, I don't know. Yeah, it depends because some are coaching
3: clients in that, you know. Yeah, if you want to. I could say recent clients. Okay, recent Um, clients. Well, I feel like I'm pretty lucky. I've had a number of clients that have come back to me um, before I worked with El in 2008, and then I worked with them again last summer, which is always a really cool thing. Yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it's like the highest Mm -hmm. uh, compliment. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. who else uh, I've worked with um, I have a client um, who owns Rosemary's Claudette and uh, Bobo oh, right. and yeah. it's been cool seeing them evolve and grow over the years and um, I really am a big fan of them and uh, who else she was. I worked with the Knickerbocker Hotel last year, oh, nice. which was pretty cool. I'm um, still.
2: I still want to go to the what, the cloud, the the
3: yes, the roof cloud. Deck. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, not... That's beautiful. Okay. Yeah, and that's right in the center of everything. Yeah. And it's oddly peaceful up there for being sort of right in Times Square. You know, you just get the sort of white noise sound, and it's 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 really quite lovely up there.
2: Yeah, I've yeah. had I had lunch once um, there, and it was really it was very nice. But oh, good. I never I think that was pre-opening of
3: the roof. So right. Yeah, yeah, because they opened in the winter, so yeah. the roof oh. didn't open for a few months after even I left. So yeah, yeah, it's beautiful up there. Yeah, there's so, so many great out. places in New York City. Oh yeah,
2: I trust I try to get to them all, and it's impossible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You yeah, have a long list. Yeah, a long list. So let me ask you the questions I have from my show last week. I had on Carrie Welsh and Mike Thielen, the co-founders of Feast Portland, which is a premier food and wine festival, and in um the pacific northwest and i was there this last weekend it was fabulous so um they want to know how are you advising your clients on tipping policies and are you seeing a change there in minimum there with minimum wage increases well it's interesting
3: so um there are people who are asking questions but mostly people are not changing in my experience mm-hmm. the, the status quo and um, I feel like the, the friends and colleagues I have who are working in, let's say, Oregon or in Washington State, they already are paying much higher hourly wages, um, and some of them are just used to it. That's just what you pay. And also, I think the, the climate out there is slightly different because there's a, a number of restaurants that are doing service included. Um, we've had not the same track record here on, in New York City. There's some restaurants that have done it, and I think the restaurants that um, – Have better luck at it are the higher end restaurants, you know, like the moderns, the Myalinos, or per se. And we changed it when I was there, Um, so that was a great lesson. Um, But I sort of my personal take is that I think culturally we're going to have to switch as a culture because I think it's too hard for a lone business to raise their prices in order to do service included. on their own because there's too much competition. When you walk down, let's say Second Avenue, you know you've got restaurant after restaurant after restaurant. Or in Chelsea, restaurant after restaurant. And for the average consumer walking by and, and saying, "Okay, this is what's on the menu and this is the price," if they don't realize offhand that the service is included, they're really it's just going to be their pocketbook talking. And there's been a number of restaurants that have already said, "Okay, we're going to do service included," and then they back off back. of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think for the consumer, it's not quite as important yet. Um, but I do think it 's time for prices to go up. I mean the prices of um you know a meal in a restaurant you know and the low end uh hasn 't changed a heck of a lot you know which is great for the consumer, but it 's also not realistic because the margin for the operators is so very small to begin with um the prices are, are just going to have to go up when when their costs go up you know that is going to have to be passed on to the uh to the you know consumer in some fashion you know but um you know and i think also people like being able to talk with their their wallet again, in terms of the service they're getting and making a comment to the restaurant. So, you know, I know I was in Italy once and there's no tipping there. And I had an experience with fantastic food and horrendous service. And I felt so like mad that there wasn't any way mm-hmm. I could display it except by talking to the manager who did nothing. So it was like, you know, and even though I don't want to, well, it was actually the waiter's fault, but you know, like I'm, I'm not, somebody usually does, you know, like take it out on the waiter, but in the one case where I, I didn't have the opportunity. It felt sort of weird as a client to not be able to have have a way right. to comment on that.
2: Yeah, I feel the same way. And actually, when I was in Portland dining around, um, everywhere was tipping except I went to Beast, uh, Naomi oh, Palmer's yeah. restaurant. And I didn't know it was service included until the bill came. And the service was so great, I felt like I wanted to leave something. That's right. Um, but I feel restaurants that are implementing it that know it's included and are... I, I mean that was a set menu, and I feel like they're they're at that level where the the service isn't going to be any less. Like that's the type of restaurant it is, where it's like right. it's just it's on point, right. and and they were so warm and lovely. Um, but yeah, when I saw that, I was like. Um, Yeah, I was, I mean, I was, I was in a sense glad that it was, it was going to be less expensive than I had anticipated. But at the same
3: time, I was expecting to leave a nice gratuity. So um, it's interesting. That's what we saw when we did change it at Per Se was people after having, you know, a flurry of people at your table all night for a number of hours Mm -hmm. to not say thank you monetarily was almost off-putting. People were like, no, 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 I I can't do that. So, you know, we had to change things around a little bit so that people, if they wanted to leave something additionally, they could, even though they were told, you know, in the reservation, on the menu, and in person, that they they weren't right. required or obligated to leave one. Um, but most people did leave something additional, even if it was, you know, 10 bucks. Right. But um, I think that's, it's that thing we, we like as a consumer to be able to reward or remove, right, with all, dis- with our own discrepancy. And we're also used to that as the cultural right. changes you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. So to me, it, it's got to change. So I hope that's answering their question. I but think so. But I don't so. think people are, you know, people aren't, you know, really jumping off the tipping ship quite yet. Because <laughs> I don't think <laughs> right. it's, it's reached the tipping point, if you will. Because I don't think enough people are doing it. Yeah. No. Unless you're high end. High end, I think you can get Or it. unless you're Danny Meyer. Yeah, that Danny has Meyer. A whole yeah, yeah, exactly. and, that's a restaurant group. That's right. That's right. But he's only doing it at some restaurants. So he's not doing it all at all I thought he
2: was slow by slow implementing it all of them. Except Shake Shack. Yeah. I mean, those. Well, I mean, I mean,
3: maybe I'm behind the times then, yeah. Because I know it's at Miley. No, I know it's at Yeah, modern. I feel
2: like he's been rolling it out. Right. And okay. he started with the Modern, um, but he hasn't
3: gotten through them all right. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. He'll, he's going to be the case study then. Yeah, he's gonna he He's going to be is. fun to watch. Yeah. So and when it hits MARTA. More power to him. Um, you know, and that's <laughs> in a more casual <laughs> environment. You know,
1: what
2: we'll will see. people be doing? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And their other question was, would you like to go to Feast next year? Absolutely. Yes, I recommend it. Absolutely. (laughs) Cool. Okay, we're going to take another break here, and we're going to come back. We're going to play my speed round game and then talk some industry news. This is all in the Industry Heritage Radio Network.
0: this break is brought to you by Shadowbox and this one's called Let's Not
2: Okay, we're back. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Kate Edwards. It's time for my speed round game. What this is is I name a couple of things, and you just pick your preference. Awesome. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Lately, eat in. Okay.
3: My chef's a husband. My husband. My <laughs> husband's a chef. Right? Lucky you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> How about wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Um beer cool tasting menu or a la carte
3: a la carte
2: small plates or large plates
3: Mm. i don't know i'm just gonna say large plates
2: okay yeah there's no right or wrong both communal table or chef's counter chef's counter here it is tipping or all-inclusive charge
3: for now tipping
2: Okay. Consulting on a project pre-opening or post? Pre. Teaching or writing? Something else you do.
3: Hmm. That's a tough one. I guess teaching. I've been to one of your classes. You're a very good teacher. Ah, Thank you. Yes. I love it.
2: How about cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. And Manhattan or Brooklyn? Manhattan. All right. Manhattan. <laughs> awesome. That was the game. Don't
3: tell anyone here.
2: Uh, they, they haven't kicked anyone out yet that okay, says Manhattan. Good.
3: Okay,
2: good. So I, don't, I think you're okay. Okay, so industry news. Uh, first, I just wanted to take a moment to talk about Feast Portland, which, as I said, I was at this last weekend. Uh, it's presented by Bon Appetit and my last show I had on The Co-Founders, and it was a really incredible food and wine festival, so well-executed Highlights the sandwich invitational night market smoked was it rained, but it didn't matter. People were out enjoying the food, it was fantastic. And Sunday's village brunch, which had the best low key vibe of any large tasting event I'd ever been at, it was just very chill. And the lineup of chefs was stellar everyone from Andy Ricker of Pock Pock to Tony Mays of Craigie on Main, and so many delicious from fresh oysters to hearty sandwiches and heavenly croissants. Open table had this nice lounge at the Sentinel Hotel that was great. I got to hang out with some industry friends including Judy Ann Wu, Merrill Evans, and Sal Rizzo. So next year, a sixth annual feast is September 14th through 17th. Mark your calendars. Their website's feastportland.com. It's really a great weekend. However, over this great weekend on Twitter, I opened it up and i saw this awful news which we're going to talk about now um there was an article in the new york times about how dorothy kane hamilton the founder of the french culinary institute passed away in a car accident she was 67 and um again i saw this on twitter and i basically froze i just couldn't believe it because dorothy is um was an incredible woman a um a leader in the industry she also hosted a show on heritage radio network called chef's story which i loved she's a member of la dame scoffier which i'm a member of and um i didn't know her that well but i i i knew her and a lot of great respect for her and i'm just i'm still shocked that she's passed away
3: i believe it that's what i've seen too i, I learned about it through a facebook friend who wrote an rip and i was like what the heck Mm -hmm. and then i saw it in the in the papers and you know online yeah Yeah. i had to
2: double check it because i was like that can't be true
3: right right yeah she's alice watersian in uh sort of profile and and impact on the industry yeah she had a tremendous impact and so many so
2: many chefs and people we know went to fci which then changed to icc and um Yeah, it's just awful, tragic news. So, I come away with being coming back to you know you got to live every day to the fullest and try not to stress out and uh, enjoy life. And she she's left her mark, and so I know we will greatly miss her. I will. That's right.
3: Um, Well, that's the thing. I mean, you the the you know the mourning that we've been hearing is from people who she made an impact on and that's the thing I think I believe that you have an impact to make you have a chance to make an impact on someone every single day and here's somebody who we're hearing wonderful beautiful stories of making an impact yeah. so you know take take that to heart
2: yeah absolutely so that was the sad news I had today and the other article I picked out was in the New York Times The Magnificent Ten Restaurants That Changed How We Eat by Tajal Rayo and this is about Paul Friedman, a professor of medieval history at Yale University, has a new book called Ten Restaurants That Changed America," and I thought this was a great topic actually for us to discuss. I don't know you saw this list, um, but it had it had restaurants including Delmonico's in New York, Antoine's in New Orleans, and yeah. um, it's a good list. Some of these restaurants aren't here anymore, but um, right. What, what did you, you take of it?
3: I thought it was pretty fascinating. I, I liked um, the reasons why. You mm-hmm. know? I, I liked the one that got me was Schraff's. And for me, I'd always heard of Schraff's as being a place where you would, they discovered starlets in the 40s and 50s sitting at the counter. But I, I loved that it was um, also a place that was designed to empower women um, to be able to go out alone. Because in those days, you were not allowed to go to a restaurant by yourself, unaccompanied. What? So they designed a restaurant where women could go because men were out off to war. So it wasn't something that you were, you know, you were a downtrodden woman, you were you were just taking care of yourself and taking care of your family. And that they also hired so many women and gave women a platform to get in the business. So I was like, wow, that is great. Great, great. Love that that was on the list. Love learning something new. Yeah. No, it
2: it is a very interesting good list. Yeah, I liked that Howard Johnson's was on the list. Right as something as a restaurant i was familiar with growing up yeah, you know and had you know i mean many have closed I, remember, I i remember when i moved to new york and there was the howard johnson's in times square in Times Square, exactly right and that was that was a sad day when it closed yeah yeah it was the end of an era for it sure. really was right so um this yeah this um, i think is probably an, an interesting book for anyone who wants to see influence of restaurants and, right. and their history a bit
3: yeah very cool article Very interesting how he came to put the list together, too.
2: Yeah. I agree. And on that note, we're going to take one more break. I'm going to come back. I'm going to do my solo dining experience. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network.
0: Music for this music break is brought to you by Rectech. And this track is called Field Trip World.
2: Welcome back to All in the Industry and Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. So this week, it's at Kachka. Here's the rundown. Location, 720 Southeast Grand Avenue in Portland, Oregon. The concept, a homage to Russian cuisine. The executive chef, Bonnie Morales. Why did I go? Because I heard this place was awesome, and it's received national attention for its Eastern European cuisine. My experience... So I made an early reservation for one, as I had a busy night ahead with the night market, followed by a second dinner, because that's how I roll. From the moment I walked in, I felt genuinely welcomed, and the staff was very gracious. What did I get? I ordered the Ruski-Suzuski Experience, which provides a tasting of an array of cold appetizers, including its signature, herring under a fur coat, a beautiful layered salad. My table was covered with five plates, with everything from an assortment of pickles to blini and caviar. I also ordered a hot black tea. My take? Bite after bite, I was impressed. Flavor combinations were unique and very flavorful. The ambiance? A familiar atmosphere with brownish diamond-papered wallpaper, montage of old Soviet posters and photos, which gave the feeling of someone's home with the culture that comes with it. I'd say it's perfect for trying a cuisine you may be less familiar with and for vodka lovers, as it offers more than 70 varieties. Interesting tidbit. Kachaka has received many accolades, including GQ's 25 Most Outstanding Restaurants in 2015 and Bill Addison's The National 38 on Eater. Plus, it got a nice report in The New York Times. Personal fun fact. I am currently representing a Russian fast-casual restaurant in New York City called Teramokh. They have over 300 locations in Russia. They opened their first New York City location in June near Madison Square Garden, and they're opening a second outpost in Chelsea this month. The cost of my meal was $28. That's not including tip, but there is no tax, which is a nice thing in Portland. (laughs) Would I go back? Yes. Their website is kachkapdx.com, and that's K-A-C-H-K-A-P-D-X. So that was cool. Russian dinner.
3: And I support two dinners. I think that's fantastic. Thank you.
2: I was, I'm like, I'm still posting photos on my Instagram from meals I had because it was too much to post all in real time. (laughs) So people following my Instagram think I'm still in in Portland, even though I'm really here in Bushwick. Right. (laughs) So yeah, it was great. Portland has a really, really strong dining scene. Impressive. Legendary. Yeah. So. Okay, it's time for the final question. My next guest is Maureen Cushing. She's the Vice President of IT and Processes at Union Square Hospitality Group, and she's the co-founder of Tech Table Summit, which is taking next taking place next Wednesday, the twenty eighth of September. So, Kate, can you ask a question for Maureen?
3: Absolutely. First of all, I have a thousand questions, for Maureen. It's fascinating, <laughs> and uh, the Tech Table is sounds really cool, and it's sold out. So go you. I love that. Um, okay. So the one question I have is actually sort of more for my clients. Um, but I still would love to know the answer. So what do you sort of recommend? Like what would be your top three tips for new restaurateurs for them to connect their hospitality brand experience to the various technological things they use? So what are, what are ways that restaurateurs can connect hospitality actively to tech? That's a good question.
2: I mean, I'm curious about that, too, even as, as a publicist to know, right. you know, ways that you could do that.
3: Right. That's well, that's, that's a feature even that I read about yeah. in my book because I feel like the customer service experience starts online. So I would love to know what she does and love to know how she puts it together.
2: Yeah, and I have to check out your book, which is awesome you wrote a book.
3: Thank you. Yeah, please do. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Did, I did like writing, I have to say. Yeah. I was surprised how much I did enjoy the process when did the book come out uh way at the beginning of this year okay yeah yeah
2: yeah that's good to know i think writing a book is is different than writing an article or you know like it's yeah so yeah it's good you enjoyed it it. yeah it's great well great that is the show thanks for having me thanks for coming out i'm impressed with everything you do i think it's uh I think you're such a value for for restaurants and all your experience that you can share it with others and help them succeed. So thank you very much. I do appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. So my guest today has been Kate Edwards of Kate Edwards Cons- Consulting. You can find her at kateedwardsconsulting.com. dot com. She's on Twitter at ServiceDefined and Instagram Kate Edwards NYC. You can find me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR at All Industry. My Facebook page is on the industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes and Stitcher, so you can listen to us anywhere, anytime. Many thanks to my show's fall season sponsor. It's One House. Their website is One-House.com, Twitter One underscore House, and Instagram One House, and that's O-N-E-H-A-U-S. So next week, I am going to this Tech Table Summit, so I'm not going to be here. So my next live show is Wednesday, October 5th. That's with Maureen Cushing. Thanks always to my fabulous engineer, Pierre. I'm Sherry Bayer. Thank you for being part of All in the Industry. See you in two weeks. Bye.
1: Thanks for listening
0: everybody get broke down Every-